New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. Hello, I'm Justine Willis-Toms. Welcome to the New Dimensions Cafe. Today, I'm hosting Dr. Devin Price, author of Laziness Does Not Exist. I'm speaking with Dr. Price at their home by remote connection. Welcome, Devin, to the New Dimensions Cafe. Thanks for having me, Justine. Thank you for being here. The title of your book is quite provocative and raises many questions. We've all grown up with the admonition to not be lazy by our parents, by our teachers, by society as a whole. So most of us will do anything to avoid being labeled as lazy. So what are you referring to when you say laziness does not exist? When I say laziness does not exist, I I mean the idea that if someone doesn't do something, it's because they are some kind of moral failure. They're kind of experiencing the sin of sloth. They, they've they chosen to somehow kind of, quote unquote, be a disappointment to other people. Uh, you know, feelings of not having motivation, that's a real thing. Feeling tired, that's a real thing. But the idea that it somehow makes us a bad person and that it's always caused by some internal failure, that's the thing that logically and in the research that we have, it just doesn't hold up. That's not why people struggle with things. It's because they're while struggling. Exactly. You know, in these days, with unemployment so high and people worried about actually the roof over their head, you know, with many businesses closed up because we're here in the latter part of 2020 in the pandemic, we're going through major transitions. And I'm just wondering about the kind of work that people need to do to just survive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're in such a precarious moment. And frankly, before the pandemic, we were still in an economically precarious moment because we just, people are working more and more for less and less. And that's been the case uh, as an economic trend for decades now. But the pandemic obviously threw that in an even sharper relief. And so people really feel this intense anxiety um, of kind of the economy breathing down their neck and that if you're not constantly going, constantly working, constantly looking for additional work to kind of pile up on top of whatever job you currently have, um, that you're, you're going to fall apart. That, um, the majority of Americans are just one emergency away from bankruptcy. And so it's a very rational, unfortunately, response for people to feel like they need to constantly work without stopping because we just don't have enough support uh, to catch people when things happen. So let's do a revisioning of this. Let's pretend that, okay, we could have universal basic income for everyone and that their health care is covered the roof over their heads is covered, their food is covered. What might that look like in terms of being lazy? Would we all then sit in front of a TV and, and not do anything, curl up on the couch and pet our dogs or cats and that's it? 
Maybe for a few days, but I don't think it would last any longer than that. A lot of people need a, a break to catch up on some sleep and maybe play a video game. But if we look at the long term, we know that most humans have a need to be needed and a need to feel fulfilled. Um, Rebecca Solnit writes about this in Paradise Built in Hell, this book about what people do in the face of disasters. People go rushing towards the danger to save other people. They cook food and combine it uh, as a community and kind of just pool their resources. Um, people want to help one another and be there for another and feel like they're doing something that matters in life. And there are so many people who are artists or aspiring scientists or writers who right now they don't have the time and they certainly don't have the brain space to do a lot of creative work or insightful problem solving work because they're doing a really grueling job all the time. So if we had a, a baseline as a society that just said, we're gonna take care of all of our people no matter what they're doing, then people would get to decide what they truly feel called to do. And we know that when people are intrinsically motivated in that way, that's when we see the most beautiful works of art and scientific innovations and so many other things. So I think it would really be like a renaissance moment for us potentially. Um, and it would also just give us a big cultural shift that if, uh, if we just all agreed as a society that every human life had an equal value and that everyone was entitled to the right to exist to a reasonable degree of comfort, no matter what they did, I think we would just all be a lot kinder. We would have a lot less stress and all of those things would be good for what humanity is capable of on so many levels. Oh, good. We just solved it all, didn't we? <laughs> I'm sure implementation well, would be hard, but I think it would really fix a lot of things. It, it would. I really believe in this. And I, I know years ago, as we were interviewing our Buckminster Fuller, he really advocated for this. And he said that we would really go for the creative endeavors that would really support all livingness on the planet. He, he was confident about that. This brings up the subject of being apathetic. And as a professor, because you do teach at Loyola University, and you have some students that people might label as apathetic. They're not turning in their assignments and so forth. You approach this a little bit differently than maybe one would expect. Yeah, so um, I have taught at a lot of different places. I was an adjunct before I came on full-time here at Loyola. In almost every place, I saw this culture of professors complaining about their students being lazy, disorganized, not driven, lacking what it takes to kind of succeed. And it, that was just always the knee-jerk response to if someone stopped coming to class, missed an assignment, just wasn't getting stuff done. And as a professor, I've always been pretty open about my own background and, and frame of reference. So if I'm teaching a psychology class, I'll, I'll share some of my own mental health struggles in a kind of a, a mild and appropriate way to just kind of say, this is normal and you can still succeed in life or you can still be a psychologist if you have these issues. And because of that, I think I've kind of been someone who students will sometimes come up to me and let me know why it is that they're missing classes, why it is they're missing assignments, because I've kind of established myself as a, a little bit safer of a person um, than maybe some of their other instructors. And when students open up to me, it's always they're working full-time jobs, they're taking care of an elderly parent. I had one student who was skipping class because they were being forced to attend the same class as someone who had sexually assaulted them, and the school was not accommodating that and being mindful of that fact. So of course they couldn't bring themselves to come to campus. It was a very unsafe place for them. 
And these were the same students that my colleagues were writing off. And in my classes, a lot of times they were flourishing or they were at least getting by. They were at the very least, they were feeling less shame about when things were hard. And it was just because I had learned through my own struggles and hardships that when somebody is not meeting these benchmarks, it's time to get curious and to be humble rather than to condemn them and think that it's like some choice that they're making. I think that you use the example of how you weren't getting good grades in statistics and and you found it completely boring, but what turned that around? Yeah, so I think we all know the cliche of like the math student who says, why do I have to take algebra? How am I going to use this in real life? And when I first took uh, statistics as a psychology major um, at Ohio State, I kind of felt the same way about statistics. I was like, why is this a requirement for me? I want to learn about, you know, abnormal psychology. This, this is no fun. That wasn't me being lazy. That was me kind of making a calculation that it made sense from where I was sitting, but I was sitting in a place of ignorance. I didn't understand yet that statistics is really important if you want to do experimental research. How are you going to analyze your results if you don't have statistics? So once I got to grad school, then it was very obvious to me, this thing that had never been explained to me, why I should care about statistics, I finally learned. And I went from someone who was like pulling a C minus in stats uh, as an undergrad to someone who has been teaching stats online for over a decade, which that's that's pretty hard to do. I mean, we're all getting used to teaching online now, but and I love teaching it because I remember what it was like to hate it and find it scary and hard. So I can kind of, for the most part, reach those students who feel that way too. Sometimes when somebody feels apathetic, it's just because the reason why something matters hasn't been communicated to them yet. Exactly, exactly. We're in the latter part of 2020. People are working from home. They're working virtually. But Devin, they are working more than ever. When you're working from home, there are no boundaries. There are no, you know, okay, end of day, get in your car, go out for a drink with friends. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So we were already living in an era where work-life interference, uh, as, as researchers call it, was really high. Uh, and work-life interference is just when you're outside of work life gets intruded upon by, let's say, you getting an email on your phone and you have to answer it or something like that. Now the boundaries have like been completely destroyed for anyone who works from home. You never leave work. You don't get that mental reset of leaving the office. And the boundaries have got, and the culture of overwork has gotten really toxic. A lot of workplaces, when the pandemic began, started making their employees install software that would allow them to spy on their activity to make sure that they were staying busy um, and were actually working enough. And um, I think it was Forbes that reported a, a month or so ago that Productivity has gone way up this year. People don't have a commute. People can't leave their desk even if they want to. And yet they still often feel like they're not doing enough because they're, you know, they get up to like wash the dishes or, you know, heaven forbid, watch a movie or something like that. So the, the guilt is so serious. And it's the last thing that people should have to be feeling right now. Like staying home and protecting yourself and your loved ones, that should be something we get paid to do. That's like saving society. You know, there's no work more important than that. Unfortunately, most people are having to toil constantly from home while also doing that. So what are some pieces of advice that you can give us to lessen the impact of no delineation between work and home? 
Yeah. So it's going to vary a lot depending on your workplace culture and just how toxic it is. So I do want to acknowledge that, that sometimes people are in a situation where communicating their limits with their boss does not feel safe and that you have to really strategize, like, who can I who can I work with at my workplace? How can we organize and really fight for these things in a way that's deliberate? And sometimes that's that's the best option. In terms of individual steps, I think communicating what you're doing and demonstrating your quote unquote value to your company in terms of what you get done rather than the number of hours spent, the more you can work towards that kind of workplace culture, the better. We have in most workplaces in the US, a culture where it's just assumed more hours working is better, even if that you're just sitting there and you're like staring at a blank Word document and you just have like, you know, a stress knot in your stomach. So if you can focus on communicating, here are the people that I mentored this week, here is the work that I accomplished, here are the things that I did, and really give yourself credit for every little thing. Um, that can help you kind of advocate for more of a position of strength. One of the sneakier tips that I give people is to black out meetings on your calendar to get things done that you need to get done. So schedule meetings with yourself on the work outlook calendar, because, you know, I, I don't know about other people's workplace, but, but mine, if I need to get writing done or if I need to get grading done, I could let meetings and emails eat up my whole day if I didn't set aside time and block it out so nobody can invite me to do anything and just say, this is grading time. This is my job as a professor. This needs to come first. So that's something I recommend a lot too. I just want to add, it's like, you don't have to say you're doing a meeting with yourself. You're just saying, oh, I'm sorry. I've arranged a meeting at that time. I have a meeting. Absolutely. I, I love that one. We're in a busyness culture. So if you can use that language to help you set boundaries, it's okay to be a little sneaky and kind of hack the system in that way. And when saying, here is what I accomplished, we don't focus on that. We focus on what we need to do, what we have not done, the task in front of us that's still to be done, rather than looking back over our wake and saying, wow, here's or looking back as we've trudged up the mountain at how far we've come. Yeah, I think it's very ingrained uh, in kind of the achievement orientation that we're kind of indoctrinated with that what's next is always what we're talking about. There's a sense of urgency. And so any accomplishment you have kind of like dissolves on your tongue and then it's gone. Um, and that makes it so hard to ever feel good. Like you're never going to win if every victory you have like doesn't count because what's next? What are you going to accomplish after that? And so I've noticed a lot of people in a lot of industries, they don't really take stock of all of the things they're doing and really give themselves credit for every little thing. So if you helped a coworker figure out how to use a piece of software, you were doing training at your job and you should get recognition for that. If you, if you developed some kind of program, that's your baby and you should get credit for that. Anything you initiated, you should kind of get credit for. Um, but we make people's work so invisible because it's just always about, you haven't done enough, what's next? Well, that just reminds me of uh, the work of Stephen Covey. He has a four quadrants and on the left-hand side, the two quadrants are all about being urgent. And the other two quadrants are like, he talks about silent time and walking in nature and making time for your own projects and your passion. Yeah. Um, so there is a ton of research that shows that to have any kind of aha moment of insight, 
whether it's solving a really complicated problem or creating a beautiful work of art, there's an incubation period is what psychologists call it. So it's this egg that you have to kind of nurse and carry. And the way that someone gets through that incubation period of creativity is not by trying to force it and not by suffering. You really just think deeply for a moment about what it is you're trying to trying to solve and then you forget it you give your brain some time to work on it in the background and that's why we have insight in the shower or like while on a walk it's because we do need time to relax and give ourselves permission to to waste time quote unquote and those are actually some of the most productive moments in the in the real way not in the checking off a million boxes way but in the terms of bringing new ideas into the world we just need rest to be able to do that. Oh, Devin, I want to thank you so much for being part of the New Dimensions Cafe today. Thank you so much for having me. I, I love drilling in deep into this stuff. <laughs> oh, me too. Me too. I've been speaking with Dr. Devin Price, um, the author of Laziness Does Not Exist. And if you want to learn more about their work, you can go to the website devinprice.com medium.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I want to thank you for joining us at the New Dimensions Cafe, and I invite you, please do join us again. You've been listening to the New Dimensions Cafe. This series of shorter interviews features many of the remarkable guests also featured on our internationally syndicated one-hour New Dimensions radio series. To access more than a thousand hours of programs, to subscribe to our newsletters, or to become a member, please visit us at newdimensions.org. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support.